this incident has told us that when the pants are scared off a populace, uh, people are less concerned about their privacy, less concerned about their freedoms, and more concerned about security at any cost. Hi, I'm Evelyn Ray. Welcome to The Cauldron Pool Show. Today, I'm joined with George Christensen. He is a member of parliament. He's an Australian politician and he's one of the good guys. He's been speaking out for a very long time about a wide variety of all different subjects. And I'm really keen to have him on here today to pick his brain about a lot of things going on in Australia and around the world. So I just want to thank you so much for joining me today, George. Thanks very much, Evelyn, and well done to you and the uh, whole team there at Cauldron Pool. You guys uh, do great, great stuff in uh, fighting for the cause. Thank you. Um, And same goes for you. As I mentioned, you are one of the few Australian politicians who has been speaking out against everything going on with COVID. And not only that, you've been doing this for a long time pre-COVID. And I really kind of wanted for people who might be in America who are tuning in or around the world, if you can just give a little bit of a background of who you are and your involvement in Australian politics. Well, um, you know, I've probably taken the stance that you refer to because I'm pretty passionate about freedom and you find that with a lot of people from the country and I'm from the country in Australia, from a rural area. Uh, My uh, folks, my grandparents uh, were cane farmers and, um, you know, uh, something to be said for uh, the freedom uh, that's evoked from the farming lifestyle. And, uh, you know, my, my father was a small businessman uh, I went off and um, disgraced the whole family by becoming a journalist. <laughs> yes, I was one of them. Uh, but, uh, you know, I guess looking at what was going on around me as a journalist sort of led me to wanting to change uh, things. And I'm not one of those that thought I was going to uh, be a journalist activist. So I became a politician instead. I started <laughs> off in local politics. I um, did a uh, tour of duty in the uh, Mackay City Council and then Mackay Regional Council for six years before being elected to federal parliament in 2010. So I've uh, been in politics now for almost 11 years, well, including local government, uh, over 17 years, actually. Uh, And in that time, I've seen uh, five different prime ministers. So there you go. Um, And, uh, you know, it's been a tumultuous time in Australian politics, but... uh, particularly over the last two years with this pandemic, it's been a horrid time in Australian politics to see freedoms, uh, liberties, uh, human rights all blown up for a virus that has a 0.27% infection fatality rate. That's psychotic, actually, what's happened in this country and what's happened around the world, but it's happened. And I've got to say, it's left a pretty raw taste in my mouth about the state of politics in Australia. Um, I love politics up until that uh, point, actually, and I become acutely aware when we're in the thick of things and all these restrictions were happening that there was very little that I could do apart from speak out uh, against these uh, the mandates and the lockdowns and uh, all of the restrictions. Um, and so I thought, look, the time's up. This This is broken. Like, you know, there's all these injustice is happening and uh, I can't do anything. So, you know what, I'm going to revert back to uh, what I used to do. Uh, I'll probably go back to the field of journalism after a while and uh, see if we can try and change the culture. So I will become Mm. an activist journalist most likely because um, uh, 
uh, I, I just uh, can't explain enough to you how politics seems to be broken in this country. Uh, and I think that's because, Evelyn, and this might elicit more questions down the track, that uh, politics is downstream of culture. And mm. so uh, if our culture's warped because of the cultural institutions, which largely the left is is, is captured, uh, but it's actually more than the left. I think that left-right paradigm's changing, actually. But the, 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 the Marxists, the wokeisters, they've captured... Uh, the institutions at the moment, including corporations, and uh, they're leading our country in the wrong direction. Absolutely. And you speak about culture, um, and I, I totally agree with you that culture kind of determines our politics. It kind of gravitates us towards one way or another. Um, and Canberra, let's talk about Canberra, because a lot of mm. people um, feel like there is a cultural shift happening. A lot of people feel like they're have been a lot of changes. People have had enough um, and the culture is sort of trending back towards freedom. And we saw that with, we've had protests in Australia all around different states for, for a long time now. But last weekend, um, or was it the weekend before, there was a very big convoy to Canberra where a large group of Australians went there to protest in front of Parliament House, in front of new Parliament and old Parliament House, um, protesting for their freedoms to end the mandates, to end the restrictions and kind of trying to speak and trying to communicate to the politicians in those buildings that we've had enough. Now, mm. you were one of the few politicians who actually fronted the crowds, who actually went down there yeah and actually saw it with your own eyes. And many Australians and many people around the world probably have only seen what happened in Canberra through the mainstream media lens, through the warped realities that they portray um, through their narratives. And I wanted to get your opinion on what you saw with the culture down there, with the people, and also like what, what your thoughts are um, with this movement in Canberra and whether what the mainstream media was reporting is very different to what you you saw with your own eyes? Yeah, well, look, thanks very much for the question. Obviously, um, this convoy, uh, as it was called, the convoy to Canberra, which is our nation's capital, um, was sparked by the convoy for freedom in Canada, which is just going great guns to the point where Justin Trudeau was just absolute, or Justin Castro, is it? I'm not sure. But Justin's yeah. <laughs> losing, losing his, you know, his, you know what, uh, losing mm. his mind over uh, over all of these truckers just beeping their horns in uh, in Ottawa. So, mm. uh, you know, there, there was uh, the, organically, actually, there was no sort of um, leadership really that, that or, or organisation that decided to coordinate something. Organically, this uh, freedom convoy just started to happen in Australia and they, um, they all decided from all over this, uh, wide, wide land to uh, descend on the nation's capital. And so I went to two uh, weekends worth of rallies that were uh, associated with this convoy. And, um, you know, the media told us it was going to be violent, that it was going to be full of extremists and fringe dwellers and mm. uh, all the rest of it. We've all They called it, it a siege. Yeah, a siege. Actually, that that is exactly what one news channel reported. They said they did. Parliament mm. House, um, you know, uh, for American viewers, our version of Congress, Parliament House uh, was under siege tonight. I remember that yes. was the, uh, the statement. And I thought to myself, really? Um, so I was there. Uh, it wasn't under siege. These people were the most peaceful protesters that you had ever seen. I mean, they start off with the Lord's Prayer. 
Um, they, they, they then have another prayer. There's even hymns sung. There's people mm. walking around with um, crosses, uh, statues of, 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 of the Virgin Mary from some of the Catholics that were there, uh, other people with uh, uh, icons of, 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 of Jesus and, uh, and, and emblems of Jesus. Spontaneous hugging bursting out amongst complete strangers. Uh, <laughs> you know, this was anything but a violent crowd. Um, the most uh, incendiary incident that actually occurred in the day, I didn't see it, but uh, I saw it on the mainstream media. Of course, they're going to pick out the one incident. So someone ran through the police line waving a flag in front of the Parliament House. That sounds like very violent activity to me, you know. Terrible not, stuff, not. George. Um, so, so he was arrested for running through a police line uh, and really that's the only sort of violence that I saw at that event. Um, but the media whipped up hatred against these people, particularly the media in the nation's capital, uh, as in the local press, the Canberra Times, uh, which is run by a left-wing media organisation here in Australia. And... Um, they, uh, you know, the, the front page had all of the protesters and, and I think the headline was, you've had your say now and in big letters, go home. You know, mm. I've never seen them say that about any other protest group that's come to our nation's capital, but they did about these people. And, um, you know, what, what, they, uh, what they elicited was hatred from locals towards these mm. protesters. And, in fact, there was two incidents that I've seen of real serious road rage, one which has just gone viral about this um, yes. woman who's absolutely cooked and she's um, she uh, drives up, literally drives up on top of another vehicle. Um, so, mm. you know, quite dangerous incidents that actually happened as a result. But these people were peaceful. These people weren't French dwellers, uh, Evelyn. They had, um, there was people from all walks of life. I met brickies there, bricklayers. I met uh uh, uh, sheep farmers, grazers as we call them. Uh, you know, I met uh, a whole heap of people from different walks of life. A lot of people who had lost their jobs from the uh, no jab, no job mandates that are going on within this country. And what they have on the back of their shirts, um, their, their profession, so nurse, um, how many years they served, 15 years, and then, you know, sacked from a mandate. Teachers, police, mm -hmm. Uh, ambulance, uh, you know, all walks of life, you would see that on the back of their shirts. Uh, and it was just shocking um, to see how many people had been really affected. And you imagine that you get your, you get your life's work, you get your, your, you know, the thing that pays your bills, that puts food on the table, that pays off the mortgage, keeps the roof over your head, and you get that taken away from you. I mean, most of these people are in professions, right, where they've had to mm. study for quite a period of time or do on-the-job training for quite a period of time to, to actually get that job. They can't just, like, walk out and get into something else uh, unless it's flipping burgers. And even then, in some, perhaps even all states here in Australia, to flip burgers, you need to be double vaccinated. I mean, yeah. it's just nuts. It is insane, and it's insane, Evelyn, because um, we know from what is going on that Omicron, COVID-19, is spreading through non-vaccinated or through, through vaccinated people as well as non-vaccinated people. So it doesn't make any difference whether you're um, jabbed or not, quite frankly. Yeah, it feels at this point in time that the gig is up. Like, we're, we're, yeah. we're you know, all cards are out and we, we can see the deck, um, but they still persist in the same narrative. Um, but 
you were there in Canberra. We're hearing mixed reports on how many people were actually there. There was a thousand. <laughs> I think yeah, the police yeah. uh, were saying they estimated five to ten thousand. Is that accurate? Like, what did you see? No, no. It, it, look, uh, I think. Um, uh, look, I, I can tell you what I saw. I, I, I couldn't count the number, uh, mm-hmm. but what I saw was the largest demonstration in front of Parliament House that I have seen in the past 11 years. Now, if you think that, oh, that's just because you're biased towards these protesters, well, let me quote you a journalist from the mainstream media, uh, Chris Ullman, who happens to be, and, uh, you know, he probably doesn't like this being said, but he happens to be the husband of a former Labor MP um, and uh, you know, it's a former left-wing MP, and he said the largest demonstration he'd seen in the nation's capital in 30 years. Now, the Canberra Times tried to say that this was a small crowd. And what they tried to go on further to say is that 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 that, that this rally was dwarfed by the 50,000-plus people that turned up for this um, feminist march uh, early last year. Now, Chris Ullman has rightly said the largest demonstration so if there's 50,000 people that turned up for this feminist march, this one was larger than that. And so I've heard the 10,000 claim, I've heard the 4,000 claim, I've heard all the other claims. Uh, there is an actual uh, facility that you can go on on the internet where you can look at a particular patch of land. Uh, mm. You can fill in the details to say, was it lightly packed? Was it fully packed? Was it, you know, I'm going to tell you, it probably wasn't fully packed, this area where I was, uh, but it certainly wasn't lightly packed. It was somewhere in the middle. I don't know exactly where in the middle, but even if it was uh, on this sliding scale I have on this app online, I've done that. I've, I've done it. I've gone and looked <laughs> at it. Even if you put it up a third, which I think is being very conservative, uh, there was at least thirty thousand people there. Now that's not enough. So it was much more than that. Uh, I, I would say I was in the middle of that crowd. I was struggling to walk around without bumping into people. So that's yeah. pretty tightly packed. Uh, there mm. could have been, in my estimate, over 100,000 people there. Uh, yeah. But, but I, again, um, I've heard people have said more. It could be more. Um, I, I can't go one, two, skip a few, a million. We're not people-counting experts, are we? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a tricky. Lot. A lot is the answer. A lot. Now, do you think that this is um, a shift in, in the public perception of what's going on? Do you think this is a reflection of that? And do you see the public sort of changing their opinion on the last couple of years and they've had enough? I think uh, more eyes are beginning to be opened about uh, this pandemic and uh, more so the overreach uh, in terms of the response to it. I still think that um, we are in the minority, but it's a growing minority. Um, I mean, the, the politicians and the media always talk about, oh, well, these people have lost because 90% plus of the country are now vaccinated. Well, I'd like to know what proportion of that 90% were coerced or forced into it by the fact that exactly. they would have lost their jobs. Or in the case of the state that I come from, um, you know, uh, because I'm not vaccinated, I can't go to any bar or cafe or restaurant or um, sporting event or cultural event. Uh, I'm excluded. So, of course, there becomes this sort of feeling that, oh, I've got to be back part of society. I need to go and get vaccinated. Uh, So so there's a level of coercion going on that's led to that 90% figure. Uh, But, uh, you know, are more eyes being opened to what is going on? 
yes, uh, it's a slow process. I think that it's happening quicker in other countries. It's happened a lot quicker in the United States. So I've got friends that are in uh, Florida, for instance, and they told me probably half a year ago that it was like COVID didn't even exist. Um, so I wish that that was the case uh, here in Australia. The closest that we've got to that at the moment is probably New South Wales, but it still lags behind. There's still people whose jobs, livelihoods have been blown up because of this. And quite frankly, what needs to happen is that those people need to be reinstated with compensation for mm. um, that, that wrongful loss of employment. Um, but this is the moment, uh, Evelyn, I would say, this is the moment that um, we need to lean into because uh, eyes are being opened and uh, we can only get more eyes being opened by continuing to push the message at this time of, of a bit of a surge, I guess, in the pro-freedom movement. Hmm. I guess that asks that leads into the next question I wanted to ask, which was where did we go wrong? Where did the Australian politicians go wrong? You mentioned there that people should be reinstated and compensated for losing their jobs. Um, do you think that that needs to happen across Australia for all professions? And um, I guess, yeah, what is it exactly that should have been done instead of what was done? Well, to state the blindingly obvious, it wasn't just Australia that uh, did something wrong. I mean, the whole world uh, fell for this um, for this ruse almost. Uh, uh, I'm not one of those people that believe COVID-19's fake or anything like that. It's, it's, uh, it's out there. Um, but China over-egged it. Communist China, I think, engaged in a in a propaganda campaign. Uh, if you read the work of Michael Sanger, he says this. Uh, we saw these images of people that um, were falling over in the street like they were dead. Yes. Um, now, now, have you seen in Australia or anywhere else outside of China anyone just collapsing in the street face first? face planning because they had COVID-19. It didn't happen uh, after. It didn't happen then. It was it was fake videos coming out of China to scare the pants off the rest of the world, over-egging this, um, this, this virus, this pandemic, uh, and, and trying to get the rest of the world to adopt the authoritarian um, style of response that China engaged in. The World Health Organization pushed that. So, um, look, at the start, you could probably forgive Every world leader, uh, a free pass for um, saying, oh, everyone, like, hide under your beds. Something's coming. This is, uh, we don't know what the hell it is. It's it's uh, high infection fatality rate, uh, high transmissibility. Um, you know, we all need to take precautions. But after about, you know, a month, it's sort of like, well, where's this black plague? It sort of, it hasn't eventuated. After two months, it's like, well, the figures from the Imperial College are just wildly wrong here now. Like, you know, this this is, we need to reassess what's going on. But no one did that. No one said we need to reassess what's going on. They just sort of maintained this fiction that this was going to be akin to the Spanish flu um, or akin to some other previous pandemic that we had. And it wasn't. It just wasn't. And uh, the more and more it's gone on, uh, the less and less lethal it's become. So, so I think that you probably could have given a grace to political leaders up until about maybe June, and I'm probably being, June of, of 2020, and I'm probably being really, really gracious there by giving them until June. Um, but then it just become clear that this is not an issue. This is, uh, 
the number of deaths we're seeing, it's like a bad season of influenza, maybe, maybe not even that. Um, but there was no reassessment, Evelyn. It was just march on as if this is the worst thing that could possibly happen to humanity, the worst thing that could happen on planet Earth, and um, and, and and then we just lost our minds. Uh, the fear elevated. Um, it, 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 it was elevated through our TV screens, through the news reports, through the politicians doing the daily case count, the daily death count. Um, you know, do they do this with influenza and pneumonia? Do they do this with cancer? Do they do this with any other form of disease which actually uh, kills more people than COVID-19? They don't. So why did they do it uh, with this virus? Uh, why, did, why did they continue to do it with this virus? Um, I tell you what, if I had one wish, it would be that all of those case counts, all of those death counts were just eradicated, that we didn't have them anymore. Uh, no more of that nonsense, because all it's designed to do is to frighten people into submission. Um, and in the UK, that was overt. It's now proven that there uh, was an active campaign that went on to scare the pants off people to make them submit. And I think that that, um, that mantra was probably followed by a fair few public health units around the world, particularly in Australia. So where do we go wrong? I think we went wrong around the period of maybe late May to June, um, where we just did not reassess the situation. And uh, we've just kept barreling down this road of we must do whatever it takes to prevent even one death from COVID-19. That's not reality. Can you imagine how stupid it would have been for a political leader in this country or anywhere else in the world to stand up and as their main goal for that year or two years to say, I am going to stop the spread of influenza and pneumonia. We are going to go for zero deaths from influenza and pneumonia this year in my state or in my country. That'd be laughed off the podium. But actually, that's what's happened over the last couple of years with COVID-19. It's nuts. Hmm. I think there are a lot of health issues that you're right, like that should have more attention to it, like suicide rates and mental health, especially there are kids as young as five in Victoria who are calling the kids helpline. I mean, that's a that's disgusting and shocking. And they seem to just not care because COVID is at the forefront of everybody's mind. Everyone wants to know the deaths, the numbers and everything. But like you mentioned, um, it's an impossible feat. And if it was about any other sort of health issue, they'd be laughed at. Um, but, you know, where, where do you see this all going? Where do you see Australian politics going from here? And what do we as Australians need to do to make sure that this never happens again? Well, I see that um, we, we've we really have trended in the wrong direction politically. Uh, we have, um, you know, if you're, uh, and I'm not suggesting this, but I'm just saying it, if your intention was you wanted to see how far you could push a populace into giving up freedoms that uh, in other circumstances um, it, it just would have been anathema to, to touch or to uh, remove, We've done a pretty bloody good job during this pandemic. We have accepted a situation where citizens of this country can be uh, locked down in their own homes. We've accepted a situation where government can impose curfews on entire suburbs of people. Uh, we've accepted the situation where people can be locked up in an apartment tower 
prisoners in their own home. We've accepted a situation where you are forced to wear something that has absolutely no efficacy whatsoever. You are forced to wear it. Uh, we have accepted a situation where if you don't do something to your body, if you don't have a medical procedure, you can lose your job. You can be restricted from places. We've accepted a situation where the government has issued us with a certificate um, and that allows us entry to a certain place or not. Uh, all of these things are just absolutely anathema. On top of that, we've accepted a situation where um, we have to scan or, or sign in so that the government or, go, or authorities can trace where we go and where we've been. Um, this is not this is not something, none of these things are, are acceptable in a liberal democratic society. They just aren't. Um, I don't care what the menace is, they are not acceptable, particularly when the menace is a, a virus with a 0.27% infection fatality rate. So we've accepted all of that, Evelyn. And so where are we going now? Well, my fear is that there are going to be other crises uh, that emerge or perhaps are manufactured um, that that seek uh, a response that's the deployment of the same sort of things. Uh, already there's academics talking about the climate crisis and whether we need yeah. climate lockdowns. Um, you know, uh, we have had chief health officers in this country, uh, medical bureaucrats, basically telling governments that uh, this tracing and tracking system should last forever. Mm. Uh, so so I know it's starting to be phased out now, but the worry is where do we go from here? And um, the thing that, that worries me the most is the intrusion into our lives, the, um, the sort of erosion of privacy. And I think that, that we're going to see more and more because this incident has told us that when the pants are scared off a populace, uh, People are less concerned about their privacy, less concerned about their freedoms, and more concerned about security at any cost. And so governments, bureaucrats, um, even big corporations, they're always going to take advantage of that fact. And uh, we just need to be vigilant about it. Um, there is a push, even in Canberra, for this digital identity, uh, which you know comes out of the World Economic Forum. They're pushing that globally. Um, this digital identity has the uh, uh, campaign has the ability to completely erode any form of privacy that we have. I mean, it's bad enough where we've got, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and uh, all the rest of them that are in big tech in control of uh, of our data. Unfortunately, we've given that up ourselves. But then to have government seeking to know every single little thing about us. And even the prospect of some of that data being shared with private corporations outside of government. So that is the push that's going on at the moment. And this is what we need to be vigilant about. Our freedoms and our privacy are more at stake at this point in time in Western civilization than they ever have been before. Yeah, it's a very scary precedent that we have set because the government always take from the people far easier than they ever give back. So once the precedence has been set and they know that they can do something, I totally agree that there is a lot of um, likelihood that this could happen again in the future for any other crisis yeah. that they deem. And, you know, I think 
if you choose security over freedom, in the end, you're going to end up with neither. And that's sort of like a one-way ticket to communism. Yeah. And I think that's the trajectory that we're on unless we do have a cultural shift, unless we do actually start mm. being vigilant, like you said, and we do take an interest in politics, we take an interest in, in the bills that are being introduced into parliament. This is the time where Australians and people around the world need to know what the politicians are doing and need to know legislations and bills that they're trying to pass because some of these health acts have been around for a really long time. You've got public yeah. health acts from 1956, from 2010. They've been around for decades and the power that the Australian government have had has been there laying dormant until this crisis sort of emerged. So I totally agree with you on that. And I guess you're very uh, openly spoken about the Great Reset um, that's something that you you speak about. And I think this is a great segue into asking you your thoughts mm. and predictions with that, because it's kind of like a scary thought for some people to think of. Um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on on the Great Reset and, and yeah, where you sort of stand with all of it. Well, actually, uh, to go back one step, and I will get to the Great Reset, but <laughs> you talked about, uh, you know, the average citizen not knowing what their politician's doing. Quite frankly, actually, some politicians don't know what uh, they're doing. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm actually, it sounds funny, but I'm actually being right here. I would doubt there would be one member of parliament right now that would be across every single bit of legislation that is coming forward in parliament. Now, I had a meeting the other day uh, with a couple of, of, of advisors, um, ministerial advisors, about a particular item of legislation. And I asked them, guys, um, I don't get anyone stopping me in the street saying, you need to do what's in this bill. You know, I've never had a call about it. I've never had an email about it. I've never had anyone approach me or come to my office asking for what's in this legislation to happen. So where does it come from? And they gave me the answer. But unfortunately, where most of this stuff comes from is not from the populace. Mm. It's coming from unelected globalist bodies, whether it be the United Nations or some forum that the United Nations auspices or whether it be the World Economic Forum, which is becoming much more powerful, actually, probably than the United Nations these days in terms of its influence. So these um, globalist unelected bodies that are full of the world's elite, the powerful, uh, the, the wealthy corporations, the multinational corporations, uh, their CEOs and executives, uh, the banking institutions um, and uh, political leaders. And they are manufacturing uh, broad-scale policy for different countries to adopt. And then they filter in to the political class, more so actually the bureaucratic class, uh, and then make their way slowly, slowly into government policy and legislation. Then you see something pop up in terms of a, a bill, uh, an, a, a proposed law, and you think to yourself, where did this come from? Mm. And you haven't seen the long trail behind it, which is um, all of these unelected global bodies. So this is a threat, I think, actually, to democracy. Uh, it has been for a long, long time, uh, particularly in the environmental realm. Uh, there have been... Uh, th th there is just a myriad of, of legislation that has come from globalist bodies down, not from the grassroots up. And uh, the the hardcore extreme uh, Marxist environmental movement uh, know all about it. So they, they are already in. They already have their tentacles in with the United Nations, um, UNESCO and all these other outfits. 
um, making sure that what pops out of there is as ex 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 extreme as possible so that when it hits the ground here in Australia, it's still got that level of extremism. Um, so I'm, I'm very, very concerned about these outfits. They, um, they have no accountability. Uh, there is no one watching what they are doing. And this great reset agenda that the World Economic Forum pushes forward is completely anathema to democracy and freedom. This is really about the fusion, believe it or not, of Marxism or socialism with corporatism. And so uh, a lot of my libertarian friends uh, get upset at me when I when I uh, sort of take on or, 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 or you know, attack uh, big corporations. But big corporations are also anathema, quite frankly, to uh, proper um, you know, free enterprise economics. Uh, they've come about through the government uh, incorporating these or allowing these uh these corporations to incorporate, they're, they're, they're sort of false, really, in a true natural economy. But now what we have is this fusion between Marxism and corporatism, where data on the populace will travel between government and uh, big government and big corporations, and uh, big corporations will be driving social change. Um we talk about the long march of the left through the institutions, uh, Evelyn, and we know they captured the universities, they captured uh, academia, they captured uh, the media, they captured a whole different raft of, of, of cultural institutions. We never ever thought they were going to go for business, uh, but they've captured corporations as well too. I mean, look at Coca-Cola in the United States with their uh, woke agenda uh, yeah. Telling their telling their workers and employees not not to not to be so white. Um, That's you know, right. It's just <laughs> insane stuff. But we're going to see more and more of this, um, right up to the very top of the food chain, where you have two global investment companies, uh, BlackRock and Vanguard. It's also State Street and Berkshire Hathaway that also have these woke agendas uh, that they push down on companies that they invest in. It's all tied up with the World Economic Forum. The World Economic Forum is sort of where all of these threads tie, um, infusing this agenda between corporations and governments and and even, even celebrities, right? Other, other people who can influence uh, populations. So I'm, I'm very worried about that agenda. It needs to be exposed. It needs to be targeted. It all seems banal and, um, you know, cutesy. They put all of the, the good lines up there and then they suddenly drop a clanger that really exposes what they're on about, like you'll own nothing and be happy. Um, that's socialism, but it's socialism with a multinational a corporation face because they are the ones who will own everything and we will be the serfs just renting from them. Mm. So what should we do as Australians? How, how do we take tangible steps? Because this is a big agenda. It's a global one. It's not one that just hits our shores. But what is something tangible that, that an everyday person who is aware of this can do to help um, prevent this happening and affecting their life? Yeah, and that's the problem when you start talking about sort of global agendas. You really, people's eyes start to spin, and they just think, "What the hell can I do about this?" Mm. But we got to accept uh, there's one thing: we are a sovereign nation. Every nation is a sovereign nation, and so 
Um, we don't have to have our governments accept what the World Economic Forum puts out in the policy document. Uh, we don't have to have uh, anyone accept anything the United Nations or any other globalist body uh, puts out. We are our own people and we have our own right to make our own laws in our own country. And so uh, that's why it's important that um, people wake up, uh, people uh, uh, understand what's going on, understand that democracy, freedom, privacy, it's all under attack uh, from this globalist push, um, that it is usurping the right of citizens to determine their own policies in their own countries. And um, at that point, when you're awake, uh, not woke, when you're awake, you can actually then say, well, I'm going to do something at the ballot box or I'm going to do something to influence my neighbour, my friend, my family member to also be awake to this. And once we have enough people that are awake, we can uh, make decisions at the ballot box that are going to be substantive and um, you will be electing pro-freedom, sovereign, uh, pro-national pro, pro sovereignty uh, candidates to parliaments that will just say, like I did to those people the other day, whoa, where does this come from? Because mm -hmm. I haven't had anyone stop me in the street telling me that they want this to happen, uh, you know, that they want a digital identity bill passed, that they want this. Where did this come from? And as soon as they say, oh, well, it's... um. The United Nations did. Uh, uh, no, thank you. Uh, yeah. You know, or the World Economic Forum. Did. No, no, no. Okay, take that back. Uh, we don't want it. Thanks. That's what we need. And so, until then, until then, all I can say, um, that's going to be a long, long, long journey. I don't imagine that's going to happen anytime soon, quite frankly. So, um, what can we do in the meantime? Well, uh, politically, we can only. Um, hope that there's some sentries at the gate, uh, particularly in the Senate, where uh, they can pull up bad government legislation and block it. Uh, we obviously need uh, another mainstream political party to be on the same side there, so that's going to be a bit of an effort. Um, and uh, we also can do what we can do in our own lives to prepare for this because there mm. is going to be, I'm going to make no bones about this, before we get to the path of victory over these forces that want to erode freedom, that want to erode privacy, that want to um, basically make us serfs and minions for big government and big corporations, we're probably going to go through a period of experiencing that. And so we need to prepare ourselves for that mm. and do what we can to actually make sure that those impacts are not going to be detrimental to ourselves and our families. Mm. Um and, you know, there's a whole body of other work out there about how to do that. Read uh, particularly the book by Rod Dreyer, uh, who writes for the American Conservative, um, The Benedict Option and Live Not By Lies. But there's a whole myriad of work out there about how to do this, whether it be from homeschooling to, um, you know, there's other people that are talking about crypto to get out of the system. Uh, yeah. yeah, you got people that are homesteaders or off-gridders and all the rest of it. You know, you can go that far if you want, but uh, with 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 uh, off gridding, but um, it probably doesn't need to be that extreme uh, in your own little part of the world. You can do uh, what you can do to make yourself free, and not living by the lie of the system. Mm. And you sort of spoke about how you know we need to have people 
in, I guess, a political understanding so that, you know, like yourself, you can say, where, where has this bill come from? Is this from the people or is this from someone else? And I wanted to talk about a bill that you, just to finish off quickly, a bill that you recently put through Parliament about censorship on an international level. And I thought just to sort of finish off, um, if you wanted to sort of talk to people a, a little bit about what it is that you put forward, because I think it's really great. Yeah, well, thanks. Well, actually, uh, uh, that bill did come from the people because I had so many people that were contacting me about uh, being shut down off Facebook or shut down off YouTube or, um, you know, whatever it may be, Twitter, all the rest of it. And so, uh, you know, you thought to yourself, this is amazing because this is the new public square. This really is where um, thoughts and ideas, philosophical discussion, political discussion happens these days. And we essentially have um, these people in another country that are in charge of what we're saying, you know, um, and they can't claim, oh, well, it's our platform, we can kick you off if we want. Well, that makes you publishers, guys, if that's what you want to do. Um, but you're not publishers because you have immunity from defamation law in this country. So if you want to be publishers and curate the editorial um, that's on your platform, on your what you call a platform, then you're going to be liable for defamation of what anyone says. Um, uh, if you're not, then leave it alone. If it's lawful speech, as in, you know, abiding by the laws of this country, and I've got to say the laws of this country are probably too far when it comes to freedom of speech in that um not too far pro-freedom of speech, too far against it because uh, we actually have, uh, for instance, Racial Discrimination Act, which uh, stops us saying stuff that might offend someone, and that's crazy. We've got a myriad of state-based laws. But let me let me get back to big tech before I get onto that. Um, so so, so uh, we have foreign powers that are essentially in control of political discourse in this country to the point where an elected member of parliament uh, was removed from Facebook, his whole profile taken down, off Instagram as well. We had the Prime Minister of this country, whose posts were censored, taken down off WeChat, controlled by the Communist Party of China. Now, a lot of people went, whoa, how do they do this? Well, if you can see the problem with that, you can also see the problem with Facebook taking down an elected member of parliament. Uh, I mean, there's going back to the 1600s. There's something called the Bill of Rights in the in England, um, which basically said that not even the king was able to stop or, or uh, a member of parliament from, from saying what they want in 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 the parliament. So freedom of speech is is vitally important, particularly in our parliaments, um, and it needs to be protected. So I put this bill together, which basically did a couple of things. One, it said that. Just they can't, big tech can't take down anything. A member of parliament or a politician, political candidate, political party or a journalist or a media organisation has posted if it if it is in uh, in line with the law. Um, because they actually also did take down a media organisation off YouTube. Uh, Sky News had a lot of its stuff, um, which right. is more conservative uh, news mm. outlets, surprise, surprise. Uh, they had some of its stuff taken down off YouTube. But beyond that, uh, to protect the populace, I said that it's just unlawful to censor any sort of philosophical discourse, including political discourse. Um, and an average person can, can go off to a government agency here, we call the uh, Australian Media and Communications Authority, say, I've been censored, I want you to do something about it. They'll look at it, they'll send off to the uh, 
to the, the outfit that's done it, uh, anti-censorship notice, and if what's been censored isn't isn't uh, fixed within 48 hours, they're slapped with a million-dollar-plus fine. Now, the bill's sitting there in Parliament. It could be voted on. I doubt it will be. We're in the dying days of the Australian Parliament before the next election uh, of this current Parliament, I should say. Um, but this is something that government can, can consider. Um, you know, a uh, uh, you know if the if the uh, a guy from North Queensland, uh, uh, the son of a taxi driver, the grandkid of, of um, cane farmers, can pull together a bill that doesn't have any issues that would successfully fix the problem of big tech censorship, then I'm sure the government could do it mm-hmm. with all the advisors and bureaucrats they have behind them. Uh, mm. But they're not doing it, and that yeah. that tells you something. That tells you something. Mm. I mean, it's the fusion of big government with big corporations, and as long as the agenda is going the way they all want it, they're happy for that censorship to continue. They really mm. are. Yeah, I think it's the, um, the the lack of objectivity and debate that's the language of the oppressor. Um, it's a pretty simple test, and it's usually people who yell the loudest about intolerance that are probably intolerant themselves, especially of free speech and things like that. I think it's a great bill that you've put yep. forward. Um, I, I do hope that it gets through. I don't know. As you said, there's little hope we have with our parliament right now in Australia, but the more that we do this and the more people sort of open their eyes um, um, and, and sort of get involved with things like this. I'm hopeful that we can have a shift in culture back towards freedom, back to our God-given rights and human rights. Um, and hopefully one day, George, we can turn this mess around. Um, but I loved your advice about things that we can do, tangible things. I think if you break the home, you break the nation. And I think if we keep our homes in check and we keep our, our ourselves and our families and our loved ones safe as best as we can from these globalist agendas and from all these things, that's the best thing tangibly that we can do for now. But look, we're, we're sort of reaching on that hours mark. So I will sort of wrap it up with getting you just to maybe um, tell people where they can reach you, uh, yeah, where they can find you. Um, and yeah, just if people want to hear more from you, where they can look. Well, I'm on all the platforms. Uh, one of the things where I'm doing a bit more long-form stuff is on Substack, so uh, nationfirst.substack.com. Uh, but you can find me on Facebook as well. Um, uh, just look up George Christensen. Uh, uh, YouTube, I'm doing more stuff on YouTube at the moment, uh, uh, which uh, is a great medium as long as they don't censor you. Uh, <laughs> but I'm also on some of the – I'm on Twitter as well, Nation First, Aust, A-U-S-T. Um, uh, and all of the non-censorship platforms, which I really should be talking about first. I mean, Telegram, uh, I'm on there. Uh, I'm on Gab, Parler, uh, Gitter. Uh, I'm on Rumble as well. Um, I've got a BitChute account, but I don't do anything on BitChute yet. Um, so I, I think we need to go more into that space, but I'm on all of it, Evelyn. If um, people want to go and find my stuff, probably just go to nationfirst.substack.com. The whole list of all the contacts uh, in terms of different socials is there. Amazing. Thank you again for joining me today. It's been insightful. It's been a pleasure and I hopefully we can do it again sometime soon. Thanks very much. 